Well, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. We take a look at the news of the day. We have thoughtful conversation about things that matter. John Hinderocker will join us today. He's one of the founders of Powerline and the president of the Center of the American Experiment. John, thank you for your time today. Hello, Bill. Hi, Claude. I want to talk to you about cops and things, but question I honestly don't know the answer. How serious is this problem of people not going back to work? because they're getting more from the government than they can make it work. How serious? I think it's pretty serious. Um, I, I believe that it, that what what people can now get from the from government for not working has been calculated at something like $26 an hour. That's more than a lot of people make and and uh, I think it's I think it's a serious problem. I'll tell you, can I tell you a quick anecdote, Bill? I I don't see much of this uh with my own eyes. Well, hold maybe I do. Maybe I do. But last summer or last spring uh, my family did a, like a three or four day getaway and we went up to a lovely resort on a far northern lake, actually on an island in a big lake. Wonderful resort we've been to many times. And at one point uh, while we were there, we were kind of sitting on the beach and and the owner of the resort and his head maintenance guy went walking by and they had you know, big, heavy equipment they were carrying over their shoulders. And I was just kind of curious about what they were doing. So I, so I asked, hey, where are you guys going? What are you up to? And, and the answer was, well, have you noticed going around the lake that people's docks are not in the water? And, and it was in the spring at a time when, when people should be getting their docks into the water. The ice is all gone and fishing season is opening and so forth. And I said, yeah, I noticed that. The docks, almost all the docks are still up on the shore. And they said, yeah, well, the reason for that is because none of the people who work for the outfits that put the docks out are working. They're all getting too much money from the government and they'd lose money if they went back to work. And, and so, and so that's why these outfits that normally, you know, put the docks out, take the docks in in the fall, they can't do it. They don't have any workers. And so these guys, the owner of this resort, who's a pretty wealthy guy and his head maintenance guy, they say, what the hell, you know, we'll do it and pick up some. We'll do it. Yeah. But that was a specific instance of where I was told, yeah, this isn't getting done because, you know, people don't want to lose money by by going back to work. The other thing I noticed, Bill, and I'm not sure if this has to do with the unemployment uh, that's available, unemployment compensation, or if it's some broader phenomenon having to do with the COVID shutdowns. But my office is in a three building complex in uh, that, that's west of Minneapolis. It's on a highway about, I don't know, five miles or something west of the, of the city. And, and before COVID, uh, the parking lots would be mostly full. You know, maybe three quarters of the spaces, something like that would be taken. Well, here we are. We're well over a year into, into the COVID situation. My, my office has been fully open since June of 2020, almost a year now. And there are still no cars in the parking lots. You know, the parking lots are now maybe one quarter full. And and if you walk down the corridor in, in, in my office building, very few lights are on. I, I don't understand it, Bill. I don't understand it. I mean, is this because people are making so much money on unemployment, they, they don't want to come back to work? Is it because people have decided they could just as well work from home? Is it because a lot of people, for whatever reason, have found work to be optional? <laughs> what do you think? I don't know. I don't know. Isn't there an end to this? I mean, doesn't this pop program, doesn't this program run out in September? Well, unless it gets renewed. 
Like, yeah, it like could be like most government programs. Yeah, yeah. Forever, as far as you could tell. I, I don't know, Bill. I mean, we're doing yeah. things that that until last year, nobody ever would have thought could be sustainable. Yeah, I, you know, I have funny thought, odd thought, weird. Um, but what are all these people doing if they're not working? You know, they're all fishing here in Minnesota. I mean, what are all these teachers doing? I, you know, I grew up in Catholic schools. Idle mind is the devil's workshop, you know. And um, I know what a lot of the kids are doing out in school is a real problem. What are these adults doing? I, I don't know what I'd do without work. I mean, I, I just, you know, I'm I'm in my late 70s. I'm working. I, I'm as busy as I've ever been. Thank God if I, if I stopped, I think I'd die. Bill, I couldn't agree with you more. I'm. When what people, are they doing? When, yeah. people, when people ask my wife when I'm going to retire, uh, she just laughs. You know. Yeah. Uh, I I'm working as hard today as I've ever worked in my life, and I have no intention of of stopping. I do all kinds of things besides work. Um, you know, I have a lot of fun, and I and I, I really yeah, yeah. time and. One of the things I've been doing lately, Bill, is I got curious about classic Western films, most of which I'd never actually seen. And and using Amazon Prime or whatever, I, I started I started going back and watching some of these some of these great old films, uh, Shane and Stagecoach and Rio Bravo and and uh, and, and others. And it's a really you know, it, given how how on the outs culturally all that kind of thing is these days it's very interesting to kind of go back and see for yourself what those films were really like and of course they're very different from the caricatures uh, you know that 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 would be that would be put about today you're talking to the right guy for years my favorite movie was high noon it was that part of your thing yeah yeah no that's what i actually had seen so i haven't gone yeah back no, that's a fabulous movie yeah, uh Written, written by, I guess, a communist about how the corruption of capitalism or corruption of a town. But it's such a great drama, Gary Cooper. Well, I've always, um, thought, it, I've always thought it was a metaphor for communism. I've always thought the bad guys mm-hmm. are the communist bloc and Gary Cooper is the United States. There you go. So up allies to, in, a, in a meaningful way, help to resist communist aggression. I think he intended it otherwise, but that's fine. I'm glad you took it your way. Uh, Shane, <laughs> Shane is one of my favorites, uh, and uh, it's a great movie. It's a wonderful movie. And um, I hate to tell you this, uh, the, you know, the fight scene where he and Van Heflin are back to back in the bar. Yeah. Fighting all the bad guys. You know about this? I'm not sure. Uh, Shane, they had to have, have Alan Ladd stand on a box. Yeah. Because yeah, he's only yeah, like he's, five, five foot five or something. Yeah. Very yeah. handsome. Well, he's not alone. Cool. I mean, a lot of these Hollywood actors. No, I know. They're not big. They're not big. Uh, what's his name? Um, Film Festival, Sundance Festival. Who's that? Robert Redford. Robert Redford, yeah, Robert Redford is like five four, five five. I mean, it's is really he? common. Yeah, it's really common among these among these film stars. I think the best villain ever is Jack Palance in Shane. He plays totally. Jack Wilson, totally. and he he is the epitome. They had audience likes this, by the way. This is not in radio. We'd call this a rabbit trail, but this is what my audience likes. That scene where I think the actor's name is Elisha Cook. Uh, he stands there on the street, his feet in the mud, and Jack Palance, who's Wilson, the gunfighter, sitting on the up on the on the on the on, uh, outside the saloon, a little higher, starts to insult the South. And Elisha Cook finally draws, and of course Wilson, Jack Palance, is a great gunslinger, shoots him. They filmed it so that this guy around his waist was a wire or a cord, 
and they yanked it to show, you know, to suggest the impact of the bullet. But um, and there's so many memorable lines. I could spend an hour on this. Bill, I, I couldn't agree with you more about Jack Palance. I mean, the way he portrays the kind of yeah. sociopathic quality Bloodless. of that villain. Oh, man. And it's early in his career, too. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I agree. I think it's it's really the definitive movie villain. That's great. That's a great, great, great movie. Great movie. You got to cry as Shane's riding off into the sunset. So uh, he's on the side of law and order. And so is uh, Minneapolis and Brooklyn Center. What's going on? What's the latest Chauvin? You you talked to us about Chauvin. You were on TV a lot. Did the jury was the jury scared into that verdict? Well, you know, one of the they they had two alternate jurors, and in keeping with the normal <laughs> practice, which has now been modified in a lot of civil cases, but in keeping with the normal practice, the the alternate jurors were dismissed before the jury began to deliberate, uh, which has got to be disappointing if you've been there for weeks. Uh, and then you realize you're not going to be a part of the decision-making process. But one of those alternate ju- jurors gave a bunch of interviews and she talked about, you know, uh, being yeah. of, of the mob and other jurors being afraid of the mob. And um, I, 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 you know, given the way this whole thing unfolded, given the way the jury was selected, given the way these, these people who got onto the jury responded to questions about their concerns about riots and violence I don't think a lot of coercion was probably necessary for this group. You know, I, I think they had a group of jurors who, who were on the jury because they, their minds were already pretty well made up and, uh, and they weren't too worried about, about the mob because they didn't anticipate doing something the mob wasn't going to like. I may be wrong about that. That's speculation, but that's kind of the, the feeling that I got. They were out for a very short period of time. Uh, they were yeah. out for a very short time. And, and I struggle, Bill, I struggle to, to understand uh, what in the record supported the, the murder conviction. Yeah. If you, and, and you know, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm very reluctant to criticize other lawyers because, they, you know, they know their case a million times better than I do. But I do not think that Derek Chauvin got a very vigorous, aggressive defense in, in, in many ways, um, either in substance or in, or in style. But and one of the things yeah. that, that I do not understand about that trial is why there was not more discussion from either side, even in closing argument, of the elements of the offenses. And even in, in the closings, um, which, is where, which is where Chauvin's lawyer really needed to make the point, they were just kind of glossed over. And, and the only thing that the, that the, um, the prosecution kept saying is, watch, watch the video watch the video, believe your eyes as if the video, and they, they mean the last video, the last nine and a half minutes as if that answered all the questions about Chauvin's state of mind and Chauvin's motivation and Chauvin's beliefs. The, 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 the conviction on which Chauvin will be sentenced was the most serious one. And that was second degree murder. I don't, I don't understand why that count even went to the jury. Unintentional second degree murder in Minnesota is is when is when you unintentionally kill someone in the course of committing a felony. And it's kind of a modification of the old felony murder rule at common law, where if you're committing a felony and somebody dies, even if it's one of your, you know, co one of your criminal cohorts, 
not killed by you, but just dies, period. It's first degree murder against you. Now, that that traditional rule is considered to be pretty harsh. So so I would interpret this as kind of a, a modification of the traditional felony murder rule. But what it says is that if you unintentionally kill somebody in the course of committing a felony, that becomes second degree murder. Well, what's the felony? What's the predicate felony yeah. that, that Chauvin was committing? Right. Presumably. I see what you mean. I didn't know what you mean at first, but yeah, yeah, I mean, they, the didn't, they didn't spell out the elements of the case, the elements right. of the I charge. Mean, the predicate felony presumably is kneeling on George Floyd, but kneeling on a guy is not a felony. And so if it becomes a felony, it's only because Floyd died. But but if but yeah, what, they're got doing, it. what they're doing is they're making the the act that is the predicate for the application of the second degree murder count, that is the commission of a felony, they're making that the same act that is the second degree murder, right? Right. There's no way that that is the right interpretation of that statute. And and maybe that point got raised in briefing in the trial court. I I don't know. I didn't see it. But I I thought that the Chauvin trial was seriously deficient as a, a, a real thorough and aggressive examination of, of the of the case against him uh any chance on appeal no this whole thing about maxine waters not, no, no no i don't no. think so now now if i were on on a minnesota appellate court i would look very hard at the second degree murder conviction for the reason i just said is a legal matter not a factual matter but i think the the there is no excuse action. me excuse me would that have to be raised by counsel on appeal oh yeah or can the yeah. court Court couldn't take it up on its own. No, it would have to be raised in the trial court, preserved okay. in the trial court, and raised on appeal. Okay. So, okay. But but I would my my guess, and again I'm speculating, Bill. But I mean, my I would be shocked if there is any appetite in the Minnesota Court of Appeals or the Minnesota Supreme Court to say, let's do this again. <laughs> you know, let's let's reach. Yeah. Well, okay. I, that, that gets me to that, that gets me to another point, which is the appetite for this every day. It seems I want to ask you about Minnesota. I'm sitting in North Carolina. You can say, "Hey, don't talk to me about Minnesota. Talk to me about Elizabeth City, North Carolina." You know the body cam. I guess I didn't realize it at the time. I said I was in favor of it. If every day in a nation of 230 million people, you know, there's some questionable exchange or encounter, at least questionable, dramatic between a cop and a black person and everybody's got body cams we're gonna have this every day and won't the impression of that be on the public shown over and over again that there really is this massive widespread systematic as they like to say bias of police against black people you know i I mean most of the crime large proportion of the crime is in these communities i think that has to do with fatherlessness and you know welfare dependency and a whole host of things cultural issues but it's there. The crime's there. So you're going to have these incidents yeah. as long as the cops keep responding. And God, I don't know how long they're going to keep responding, John. Really? If I were a cop, I don't know. Call 2.30 in the morning, Chicago in an alley. I don't know. But let me or stick how, to that about, point. Let me about, stick to that point. How about the police officer in Columbus, Ohio, who saved the black girl's life yeah. and got accused of being a racist? How about that? Yeah. Uh, I, I'm that guy. Sure as heck, I'm not going to intervene next time. This is the most amazing thing, Bill. Apparently... Apparently, you know, the normalization of knife fights, liberals are now saying, yeah, girls will be girls. Sometimes they fight with knives. Uh, although in, in this case, only one of the girls had a knife and was in the process of stabbing and potentially killing the other one. 
but but they're literal liberal liberals are literally literally saying now that if black people are fighting with knives the police should just let, leave them alone and if i were a police officer by golly i think i'd be tempted to take them up on it. if i were a black person boy i'd be furious this is like mrs bennett's program in schools in dc abstinence from drug sex and alcohol and you know she's conservative mrs bennett and the liberals say to her well what are you talking about they're just going to do it condescending you know attitude toward black people and well, um, this is I, I keep waiting bill i mean there are blacks who who rebel against that it's not that there are none there, there there's there are a, a, quite a number and i think it's a growing number you talk about racism i'll tell you i'll tell you an example of racism in 21st century america and that is the liberals who say that math is racist math is racist because of this idea that there's a right answer to the problem. And oh, by the way, you, sometimes you got to show your work to show that you understand you know, the calculation. What, what are the, this is unbelievable to me. Math, to say that math is racist, what you're saying is black people can't do math. That's right. I mean, that's what they're saying. They're saying you can't, you can't, you can't teach math in the normal way. You can't expect students to actually get the right answer. You can't mark their answer wrong if it's not the right number. And the reason is it's racist to do that. So what they're saying is blacks can't do math. That Asian kid, a couple of rows over in the classroom, he'll probably get the right answer. But you blacks, forget about it. We'll just pass you regardless. Bill, if you if you set out to devastate, to destroy the futures of young black kids, I can't think of a better way to do it than with that racist ideology. Yeah, Bush's best. That's very, very good, John. Bush's best line, um, bigotry of low expectations, the bigotry of low expectations. And that's that just tells you a lot. You know, when I was the secretary of education, we did a study, found out that black students graduating from high school with a B average were much more likely to go to college than white students with a B average. But they were still disproportionately as part of the population lower than whites because there weren't that many students who got to be. And so the response from some communities was dumb it down. But, yeah, well, we're you know, you got a few that. champions in, in the black community. Go ahead. Yeah, we're, well, we're seeing that across a broad swath of American life, right? It's what my partner, Paul Mirangoff, calls the war on standards. Uh, if you have an ethnic group that... that uh, that, that meets a particular standard in, 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 a, in a lower ratio. It's not that none of them meet it. Some do. But if the percentage is lower, well, then lower the standard. <laughs> and yeah. it becomes kind of a race to the bottom. And I'm not sure <clears throat> at that point you just, uh, it, you know, at some point you can't lower it any farther. Right. So enter Tim Scott. And I've been thinking as the day's gone on, you only watched a minute of Biden. I assume you went to bed and didn't see Scott or did you wait up? I've, to seen, see I've seen clips of Scott. Yeah. Uh, well, what you need to know, first of all, working backwards is that he was completely vilified by the left for what he right. said the n-word uncle right. tim what he said was terrific and let me start with my alley here first um where i live he said you know, he put it very nicely better than i'm gonna put it he said 80 100 years ago you know everybody focused on race and if you were black you know go to the back go to the back of the room no math for you uh no nothing for you you're white you're right up here it's an old song. If you're white, you're all right. If you're brown, stick around. If you're black, get back, get back. We got rid of that. Over time, it took us a long time. He said we got rid of that. And I always think of Martin Luther King, right? Judged by the content of your character, not the color of your skin. He said, but now we're being urged in the schools to go right back to that. It's your race that matters more than anything. And that's what critical race theory is about. That's what 
the charge of systemic racism. The president said that last night about yeah. police departments. He said, yeah. he said systemic racism in police departments. So Scott was vilified this morning. He gave a great talk. It was dignified. I think this could be a big deal. You know, the way they turned on him, the 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 the, the, the viciousness, the bile with which right. they turned on him. I actually wrote about this just a little while ago on Powerline. You probably haven't seen it yet, but I, I wrote about the, the Tim Scott's uh, rejoinder. And it's kind of interesting in a couple of ways, I think, Bill, because it, his, one of the points I make is that historically – uh, that has not been a plum opportunity <laughs> to give the out party's response to the State of the Union or the, the speech to the joint session, right? And, and I think a big part of the reason is that historically, there's been all this excitement around the State of the Union. You got the packed House chamber. You got the, you know, interrupted for applause a hundred times. You got all this, you know, all this pageantry and the people being singled out of the balcony. Well, then the response is given by a member of the other party and he's standing alone in a room by himself with a camera. And, and it's kind of pathetic compared to the pageantry of the State of the Union. But last night was different because... We had this, like I was saying earlier, we had this linking yep. event with the almost empty house chamber and no excitement whatsoever. Biden grimly reading the teleprompter. And so, and you didn't have that contrast. And so you actually could focus more. Yeah, really good point. Focus more on the, on the real contrast between Joe Biden and Tim Scott. And if you actually look at it in those terms, Tim Scott, of course, comes off very well. And and as you say, Bill, the, the you, right. on, on Twitter, unbelievable. The the hashtag Uncle Tim was trending with somewhere last time I saw close to six thousand tweets. Twitter finally came in and suppressed that hashtag out of embarrassment because people were criticizing them for for not doing it. But but the venom, the venom that comes out. Um, and and by the way, one person on Twitter said that uh, uh, liberals uh, think there's a lot of racism in in. I, I, I'm not going to say this quite right, but the, but the point is that liberals claim that there's still a lot of anti-black racism in America. And then they went on Twitter last night to prove it with what, right, they, yeah. said about, what they said about Tim Scott. It was kind of eye-opening. Yeah, good for you. I will read it. I will read it immediately uh, when we're done. But I, I um, yeah, I, again, I'll come back to something. I think you and I have talked about this before. I want to come back to the police thing in a, in a couple of minutes to, to wrap up. But I, I just don't think this systemic racism thing will fly because it defies, because everybody, every white person knows black people. You may not know white supremacists, you know, but everybody knows black people. And, you know, I was reporting about the interactions I saw here in North Carolina between white people and black people. Natural, easy, joking friendly these were 70 year old white people in a waiting room in a in a, a doctor's office and 30 and 40 year old black people relaxed easy comfortable 95 percent of interactions between white and black people in this country are fine for someone like you know benjamin crump or you know sharpton to come along and just to tell us it's it's just horrible it just defies everybody's experience no, I don't. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It certainly is. You know, my experience is like yours. But but I, I don't understand the arithmetic. I, I cannot understand how this endless yammering about America being a white supremacist country and everything shot through with racism. I don't understand how the numbers can possibly work for the Democrats. Right. First of all, whites are still about 65 percent of the country. 
and, and maybe, maybe a little more than that in the voting electorate. How can it be a great strategy to attack 65% of the voters? So out of the box, that seems weird to me. Secondly, I don't think that Asians... Can I interrupt? Can yeah. I interrupt? They're whites, but they've been to college, a lot of them. And they've been taught in high school. I mean, I, you know, I keep coming back to beating the drum where I live. But I remember looking at bulletin boards 25, 30 years ago, John. You are the most important in your life, person in your life, blah, 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 blah. I said, we're going to get in trouble with this stuff. And we are. So we look around and we say, gee, the foundations and the corporations and the media and Hollywood and the schools. How did they do this? I'll tell you how they did it. They said, let's go get the kids. Bill, you're absolutely right about that. And I'm not saying there are no white liberals. And I'm not saying there are no whites who have bought into this insane, insane racist CRT ideology. Just go to my church, Bill. I'll introduce you to some whites who have fallen for this thing hook, line, and sinker. It's sad. I'm not saying there aren't any, but I am saying I just don't see how you can get that one passed. 65% 65% of the voters. Okay. I mean, I, it's got to be a minority when you start out talking about white people. But then look at the other races. I mean, I don't think many Asians like this. I mean, here are every every ethnic Asian group earns more money on the average than whites. They all do. Um, I don't think they like this, this whole uh, emphasis. Everything's about race and therefore... And therefore, we got to we got to do something to promote African-Americans even more than we've been doing for 50 years of affirmative action. Hispanics, Bill, are very suspicious of this. You know, Hispanics tend to be people who came to America for opportunity or if they didn't, their either parents or grandparents did. Uh, They tend to be patriotic. Uh, This is not their deal. You know, and Hispanics are a bigger, a bigger voting block in this country than blacks are. So, I mean, I just don't understand how this narrowly tailored, radical pitch can possibly be a good idea. I hope you're right. It, It is. It is a big ally to have the media on your side, though. You know, um, yeah, I guess, Bill, I guess you don't think so. All right. Good, well, good, good. All right. Oh, well, look, I mean, obviously it helps them. But God knows where they'd be without it. Right. But I, I think that we are so splintered these days. No, but nobody cares what the New York Times or the Washington Post say. Anymore. Yeah. I, I mean, I, 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 I agree in that. I'll come back to my point. Nothing, nothing resonates in the long run except what people experience and see. That's in my, my idea about relations between blacks and whites most of it being very good one group you left out if i'm reading correctly that does very well is nigerians oh yeah and Ghanaians. really well oh yeah i mean and I, people who identify in the census and this is based on the boxes you know people people the, the census bureau gets this information based on people's own descriptions right so so in the last census for which these numbers are available i think it's 2019 Whites are number 17 among ethnic groups. Indian Americans are first with average income or median incomes almost double those of white Americans. But you go down the list, Korean Americans, Vietnamese Americans, Filipino Americans, on down, uh, Pakistani Americans, they all out-earn whites. Nigerian Americans out-earn whites. Ghanaian Americans out-earn whites. Um, you know, these, com- these communities are doing very, very well. And, and the left has to just totally ignore reality to try to sell this indictment of America. So let's close back to the police, because uh, what about this? Is, is it analogous to what we're saying? Um, 
about whites and blacks. Um, what's the percentage politically? What's the gain in saying there's systematic racism in the police departments and most of them are racist? Mm-hmm. And and is there really, you know, this dance now we're getting out of the Justice Department with the Attorney General somberly announcing we're going to investigate Minneapolis, Louisville. I'm sure Elizabeth City is next. I mean, people buy that? I, I don't know, Bill. Again, I agree with you. It's very hard to understand how this is a good idea. All I can say is that my organization, Center of the American Experiment, we've pulled these issues here in Minnesota, and Minnesota is probably at least as liberal as, as the country as a whole. And what we've found is that 85% of Minnesotans, if you get out of the core cities, Minneapolis and St. Paul, If you just look at Minneapolis and St. Paul, there are an amazing number of people who don't support their local police and who are serious about defunding police departments. I don't know if it's a majority, but it's a significant number of people. But if you get outside of those core cities, uh, the rest of the state, it's 85%. If you ask them, do you have confidence in your your local police police, uh, department, local law enforcement, 85%. You ask the question different ways, you get the same result. 85% like their local law enforcement have confidence in it. And the interesting thing to me, Bill, is that that percentage is the same in the suburbs as it is in the countryside. So nowadays, urban areas across across America tend to be blue. Rural areas are, are just universally red. And the suburbs are the great swing battleground. It's interesting to me that in our polling, the suburbs on this issue, law enforcement, look exactly like the rural areas, totally different from the urban cores. And that tells me that the Democrats are making a big mistake if they try to run on anti-law enforcement platforms anywhere outside Central City. I just would, I, I, I agree with you. I would just note that when you say, well, cities aside, it's a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, Oregon, it's Portland and what's left out after Portland and Washington, it's Seattle. And, you know, the eastern part of the state's a different state. What percentage of the population of Minnesota is Minneapolis, St. Paul, would you say? Well, I mean, it's rather small. The population of those cities together is only about 800,000 in a state of about five and a half million. So, you know, like America generally, Bill, the suburbs now are where most of the people live. Yeah. OK. Rural areas. And that's. And you read suburbs as swing, right? I think that's the conventional wisdom. It's certainly true in my state. I think it's true across the country. The suburbs used to be considered pretty solidly Republican, uh, not true anymore, unfortunately. And I think, the, to me, the big, the big political question continues to be, how can the Republicans win back the, the suburbs? They, they, they're, they're competitive in most suburban areas, uh, but, but if they could re- really win back the suburbs, well, then they'd be dominant. Yeah. And you looked at the podium last night. There's Joe Biden. And I don't care what he says about Scranton. He's basically from Philadelphia, you know, that corridor. And there's Pelosi, San Francisco, and Kamala Harris, San Francisco. And then, you know, Chuck Schumer, my former student, New York. I mean, it's where the cities are and that's where their power is. Can they persuade the suburbs? Let's finish the thought. Was it the suburban housewives then who just didn't like Donald Trump and just couldn't bear his style? I was surprised to see even the Washington Post admitted a switch of 44,000 votes, according to the Washington Post, separated Biden and Trump from the presidency. 44,000 suburban housewives just get turned off to Trump, I think, probably 10 times that number. Yeah, yeah. A couple of thoughts on that, Bill. First of all, it's not just Trump. This trend of the suburbs 
drifting toward the Democrats has been going on for for a lot longer than since 2016. I believe that that the uh, polling data indicate that Trump actually did better with suburban women in 2020 than he did in 2016. But obviously, they were not his strong, his strong demographic. What I would say, Bill, is that the problem is primarily among women, not exclusively, but primarily And the way I would put it is that if suburban women, again, this is a very broad generalization, I get that, but, but I think it's, I think it's true of a lot of people. If, if they don't see their interests, things they really care about being threatened, and what do they care about? They care about safety and security. They care about their children. They care about the value of their houses, right? If they don't see those things really being threatened or really being at stake, then they drift off and they vote on feel-good issues, on uh, you know virtue signaling issues, whether that's gay marriage or some of this racial stuff, uh, the environment. Then they tend to vote on those issues. And so what I think is incumbent on conservatives is to make it clear to those voters, those swing voters, that the things that they really care about are at stake. That, that the safety of their communities really will be threatened if the left gets its way. So the issues that really matter is the real threshold point, decision point. It's not... That's what I think. That's what see, I, think. I, I was going to take your generalization, which you said was her stereotype, which you said was maybe inaccurate, and, and raise it with my stereotype, which was suburban housewives who majored in sociology or communications. But, okay. But you're saying when it gets to the rubber hitting the road in terms of their kids, their kids' safety, value of their community, crime, crime is big, Right. Right then Republicans can get them. Yeah, then they'll, well, go back to, they'll go back to voting their interests. And one of the things that I think we've learned, Bill, is that particularly when you talk about, again, again, it's a stereotype, I get that, but, but, it's, it's, but there's a lot of people that that stereotype fits. One of the things we've learned when you talk about the suburban housewives who are swing voters, they're not motivated by taxes. They're not motivated by what we conservatives think of as the tr- traditional bread and butter issues. They, they understand that, that their family is paying more taxes if they vote for Democrats, but that doesn't motivate them. They'll, they'll vote on the environment. They'll vote on race. They'll vote on uh, gay marriage, uh, these, these soft issues. And so I think we conservatives have got to identify issues that resonate more with that demographic than the traditional conservative bread and butter issues. I'm always banging Republicans saying education, education. Does that matter to that suburban housewife, critical race theory? Well, it absolutely absolutely matters, but you have to translate it into something that applies directly to them. Too many of them are not really offended by CRT per se. As a matter of fact, all that nonsense about race, that tends to be indicative of elite education. The, the, the elite private schools are the worst and, yeah, and sure. the allegedly high quality uh, public suburban schools. They're the ones that have gone in for this whole hog. So that in itself isn't enough uh, to offend that swing demographic. What you need to do is to tie it to the overall decline in standards, to, to, the, to the decline in quality of education and how that uh, can threaten their children's future. Yeah, well, maybe up to a point, but then again, there's a breaking point. I think you and I talked about this before. Parent at, I think, Harvard-Westlake School there in, in Los Angeles, elite private school. Yeah, we, we were willing to stomach all this stuff they told us about privilege and, you know, all that all that crap, the guy said. 
when we were sure that to, to stomach it, we had to pay the tuition. We did that. We listened to it. We nodded. But then our kids didn't get into Harvard or Princeton because they took a lot smaller number of white kids this year. <laughs> then the rubber hits the road. Now we're talking about security and safety and right. Yeah. That's right. Princeton is basically white males. Or one might say Dartmouth. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what the numbers are. I'm sure they're I'm sure they're bad. But but here's my point, Bill. W- one thing I would say to these suburban parents is, hey, you know what? In China, they're teaching algebra. They're teaching calculus to their yeah. eighth and ninth graders. Yeah. They're not teaching race nonsense. They're not, you know, they're not doing um, social promotion. Uh, those those kids are are learning yeah. mathematics, and if your kids are being taught propaganda instead of hard sciences, they're in trouble because when they grow up, they are going to be competing with kids that that grew up in places like China and Japan and Korea, and they're not fooling around. They're not fooling around. They are educating their kids, and your kids are not going to be competitive if we don't do the same thing. I was saying this morning that PISA. It's done every two years, the math studies, international math studies uh, assessment. Uh, we were 26th yeah. in the world, and China was one. And what they the, would. Yeah. One of the ironies, Bill, is here's China, supposedly a communist country. And, and what they've got is this ruthless meritocracy, right? Yeah. I mean, they are. When it comes what, to math, you bet. The schools, yeah, well, yeah. math and science and, and the things yeah. that they think are important, you know, management skills. I mean, they are a ruthless meritocracy and we can't continue down this 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 fuzzy headed path that we're on and think we're going to be able to outcompete those guys. Yeah, I see this drama at the Thomas Jefferson High School in Alexandria. You know about this? No, I don't think so. It's all just another example, but kind of absurdity here. It's it's been rated one of the top three or four schools in the country. It's the school of math and science. It's a meritocracy totally, uh, and they you know they're they're shifting because I th- one of the numbers I think it's seventy six percent Asian, sixteen uh, percent white, uh, another mix, and then I think one and a half percent black. So they got to do something about this. So they're going to do it in terms of uh, admissions. But the guy defended it on grounds of, well, we just think we want greater representation of white students. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think that's what they were thinking. But yeah. parents are up in arms, as they should be. Well, good. Um, good. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get them out. I'm trying to get them out with the pitchforks, as Pat Buchanan used to say, yeah. about their schools and about their kids. They're dumbing, it, they're dumbing down your kids. Uh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen with advanced placement? You know, they've destroyed the SAT, which is a very good test and a very good predictor. Right. Yeah. You know, Bill, back in the old days, it was guys like me who got ahead because of the SAT. Yeah. I know. Uh, you know, um, I grew up in a small town in South Dakota, you know, and 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 um, and we had a wonderful educational system. But but we weren't we weren't we, we certainly weren't tied in any kind of a. Uh, an insider pipeline to to the greater world. But in my high school class, I went to Dartmouth. My two best friends went to Harvard and Yale. 
and that was possible because of the SAT. And, yeah. uh, and, and in those days, all of the colleges were, were really were meritocracies. <laughs> I mean, they really were. And, um, and I'm afraid that's been lost. I mean, the SAT has been watered down in a, in a variety of ways. And, and there are colleges now that, that don't even require any of those tests, SAT, ACT. And, and, and of course, with the great right. inflation in the high schools, you, the grade averages mean little, little or nothing nowadays. So, you know, God only knows on what basis they're, they're choosing their student body. But we, we have clearly lost a lot of the old meritocratic uh, sense that we used to have. You know, when Charles Murray published uh, The Bell Curve, and it was all about, of course, all the dispute was about the IQ, relative IQ differences by race. But I remember reading it and he said, what do you think? I said, that's all anybody's going to talk about is your racial comparisons. He said, and you got so much other great stuff in here. Did you ever read it? Yeah, I have. Well, actually. the beginning, if you remember, you just reminded me, he said it was when the elites, you know, started to engage in cognitive stratification and, and all of a sudden stopped looking just for blue blood people and family names mm-hmm. and the Harvards and Yales and Dartmouths started to look for intellect wherever it was in the country, even God knows in South Dakota, right? And right. so- they found these kids, and that was the marvel I saw at Harvard. Uh, you know, when I was a proctor, I was in law school, and you know, these kids from all over the country, and it was this cognitive stratification system where they just had this machine through the application process and the test that could determine who the ablest, brightest kids were in the country, and we're destroying that. Yeah, I think it's pretty much gone now. So you get, I guess you get to you ever watch Larry David? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So he's out there and he, you know, he's, his friend's there and the black guy runs by jogging and says, you're a doctor. Jeffrey's a doctor. He said, oh, you one of those affirmative action doctors? That's that, you know, that, that begins to be the assumption. Larry David says it. Right, right. The rest of us don't say it. Right. But it's in your head. It's in your head. Well, which Because if you start it? to destroy the system, people say, oh, man, you know, it's gamed. It's all gamed. And uh, what was it? United Airlines who said yeah. something about we're going to, you know, right. equalize this, equalize the cockpit. This is exactly what I was going to say. I think it's United yeah. who that came out with this publicly. Well, from now on, everybody that flies on a United flight is going to be peeking into the cockpit. Yeah. <laughs> wondering, wondering, oh, have I got one of the affirmative action pilots? You know, that's, yeah, exactly. that's one of the situations where where people really want a meritocracy. You want the best pilots that, that you oh, can Oh, are you get. kidding? John, thank you very much. Thank you. B- bye-bye. bye-bye. Stay current on the threat posed by China with our friends at Committee on the Present Danger China. Go to presentdangerchina.org, presentdangerchina.org. That does it for today's show. Catch up on previous episodes of the show. Go to thebillbennettshow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett. You can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's Bill Bennett Podcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week. Mm-hmm.